Hello, and welcome to episode 143 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We are here today with Jen Paula Yukonis, president of Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence, uh, former legislative director for Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence, and former Maryland chapter lead for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Jen is also a former educator. Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Excellent. The first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Uh, so before uh, the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School, I hadn't done much. I mm-hmm. mean, I was a high school teacher. So, of mm-hmm. course, you know, working in public education, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I felt as though I was contributing mm-hmm. to society at large. Um, but mostly my politics, it was, you know, complaining on social media and right. chatting with my friends and family. Um, I really hadn't gotten involved aside from voting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after Sandy Hook happened, um, I sat around and, and I cried. Uh, and I realized that that wasn't enough, mm-hmm. that I was complicit um, in those shootings because after Columbine happened mm-hmm. and after Aurora happened, mm-hmm. um, I hadn't gotten involved. And I live just outside of Baltimore City. Right. And what was I doing to help Baltimore City? What was I helping to do um, to prevent so many of the people um, in my own state and mm-hmm. in my own area um, from being shot every day on the street? So what is it particularly about the Sandy Hook incident that really galvanized you? As you mentioned, there have been mass shootings for a long time, relatively, um, was it that the children who perished in Sandy Hook were of a similar age to your children? Is that what hit closer to home for you? So I think that I saw that from two places. I saw it from the face of an educator, mm-hmm. and I saw it from the face of a mother. Um, I didn't have kids before. Um, I think part of it is just how young those kids were. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they were babies, mm-hmm. and they were, they were in an elementary school. Um, and I think we always... We try to rationalize gun violence. We mm-hmm. try to say, oh, well, that's because someone's involved in crime. Or, well, that's just this neighborhood. Or, right. well, it was a, that's a college, but, you know, I'm sure uh, it won't happen to a high school. And when it happens to a high school, and say, well, you know, now we're normalizing it in a high school, but it could never happen to elementary so school. So it hit, like, the most safe place possible Absolutely. and the most vulnerable people Absolutely. possible. Yes. And my son right now is in first grade. And, you know, when he is, you know, in his pajamas, I mean, he's just, he's just a baby. I yeah. mean, they were just babies. And to have educators who put themselves on the front line, who had to sacrifice themselves to try to save those kids. You don't think of a school as a war zone where you have to sacrifice no, your life for abso- your kids. Absolutely not. And it just made me realize that uh, we accept these deaths when there are so many easy ways to prevent it. We just need to stand up and do that. And so for the past four and a half years, mm-hmm. um, I've been trying to find out as much as I can about gun policy and, mm-hmm. and our laws and how can we strengthen them to make sure that not only does it not happen to my family mm-hmm. and to communities like Sandy Hook, but that it doesn't happen in uh, uh, neighborhoods of, with predominantly people of color mm-hmm. uh, in Baltimore City and Chicago and Detroit and New Orleans where mm-hmm. it's happen, happening every day. But their stories and their faces aren't on the news. Right. So you're learning more about gun policy. You're becoming an advocate. Um, How did you get involved with Action for Gun Sense in America, for Moms Demand Action? What what led, how did you, was that a group that you found? How did you find it? 
so when I when I first found out I was a uh, I I was staying home from being an educator from mm-hmm. being a high school teacher and I was home with my two children um, and so I started looking around um, just the internet and trying to find out where can I get involved mm-hmm. um, because I was a stay-at-home mom I didn't have a lot of extra funds that I could contribute to the cause but mm-hmm. I thought well I have time. Mm-hmm. I can do something from home. I can take my kids with me down to Annapolis, down to D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and right at about that exact same time, that's when Moms to Man Action was started. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were having a call out um, for people to um, start chapters all across the country to build up this grassroots action. Right. And so I I followed that call and I... While learned... remaining a teacher? No. So then I was already staying home with my kids. Okay. So... Um, at this point, I had a, a two-year-old and a, and a one-year-old. Okay. So they were both really little. You had a lot on your plate then. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm ambitious, uh, so I started volunteering to go down to Annapolis and meet with legislators during the campaign of the 2013 Fire and Safety Act. Mm-hmm. I volunteered to go down to D.C. to meet with my legislators there. Mm-hmm. Um, I started writing emails that would go out to um, different advocates all across Maryland and different mothers all across Maryland who were interested in this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just started taking on more and more until um, I, that spring, became the chapter lead and started running um, the, that part of the organization in Maryland to try to uh, organize in our own state of the types of laws that we could work um, as, as, you know, amateur activists um, so, on, on, on how to get that done. So in 2013, there was a great success for liberal activists in favor of firearm regulation in uh, passing uh, legislation that actually went into effect in October 2013. Can you speak about your involvement in that uh, legislative process? And what actual components of the legislation were in there? And now that it's been a few times, uh, now that a few years have elapsed, could you speak about the effectiveness and the impact that that law has had? Sure. Um, I, at the time, I was uh, working with Mom Spin Action, and that was actually one of the first meetings in my life that I'd had with my own delegate down in Annapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked very, very closely with Vinnie DeMarco, who at the time had just started Maryland Spread Gun Violence. And both of these organizations um, worked to uh, get people down to rallies, mm-hmm. uh, get folks down to testify at hearings, mm-hmm. um, and we were successful and that was passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the most important components of that, um, there is a piece where there's an assault weapons ban, there's a limitation on um, rounds in a magazine, no more than 10 in Maryland. Um, there's a really important component, which doesn't get a lot of attention, um, so that mm-hmm. the Maryland State Police... Um, has uh, the power to regulate uh, gun dealers. And if you are either a dealer um, or, or a person who owns a gun who has a gun lost and stolen, you have to report that within 72 hours mm-hmm. um, because those lost and stolen guns, that's one way that guns are diverted to the underground market. Um, and the foundation of the law deals with uh, handgun purchaser licensing. And mm-hmm. studies from the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research have shown that if you have to get a license, so if you have to take a safety course first, um, if you have to get fingerprinted, if you have to go to your local law enforcement and get a license before you purchase a handgun, mm-hmm. um, in a setting in Connecticut, it's shown to have a 40% reduction in homicides and a 15% decrease in suicides. Um, and so we worked really hard to find policies that worked, you know, evidence-based policies that we could fit into that bill to make sure that um, they didn't just sound good, but they, they, they could do good. Mm-hmm. And so we passed those major components, and of course they were implemented in October. Right. Um, and then 
we started to see some numbers um, of homicides go down in that first year. Uh, Daniel Webster has started to see numbers of uh, if a, if a, Who is? Uh, sorry. Um, Daniel Webster is the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of the leading experts um, on this issue across the country, and we were lucky enough to have him in Maryland. So um, in Marylanders from Gun Violence, we get to work very closely with him and his team. Um, but what we started to see uh, in Baltimore City was that there was a drop in when, if a gun was purchased in that first year, that there was a 75% reduction where there was then a straw purchase. So then it was uh, diverted to someone else then it was used in a crime. Mm-hmm. So we were starting to see these numbers. Um, and of course, what keeps me up at night was, you know, in early 2015, um, there was the the tragedy with Freddie Gray. And, you know, this the, there was an uprising, you know, which dealt with uh, systemic police brutality. Right. Uh, and... That violence created more violence, and so as we, with guns, with guns, because he died from choking. Right? He did, but but there was but the violence that followed the uprising when um, after his death, mm-hmm. uh, because there were lots of drugs, new drugs that were out on the streets, so there was lots more turf wars that were happening in Baltimore City. There was an uptick in violence in mm-hmm. urban areas all across uh, all across the country, and so. That continued. So, as as what we've seen since 2015 is a tremendous amount of gun homicides in Baltimore City. I think in 2015 it was up to 344 homicides. About 300 of those were gun homicides. Uh, in 2016, they were about 300 homicides. About 90% of those were gun homicides. Uh, and then so far in 2017, there's been a shooting a day. So gun rights advocates would say that if you define or may say that if you define homicide as killing another person, Mm -hmm. right, then that may be okay. For instance, in times of war on the battlefield, you can kill people and that's fine. Um, Also, they might say that if somebody is invading your home, right, and and committing theft or armed robbery or, or committing violent acts against you, threatening your life, then a gun advocate would say that's the precise situation in which you'd like to have a gun, use a gun, and kill another person, and you wouldn't be criminally liable if that was in your own home and they were attempting to kill you. So an increase in homicides may not necessarily be a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing, but it, from, a, from a gun rights perspective, it may be that, well, maybe these homicides are, are justifiable as defense, right? Do you have any numbers on the extent to which these homicides um, were committed by law-abiding citizens who are simply trying to protect their home and family? Uh, I don't have numbers that any of these people would be trying to protect their home and family. And I think that most gun rights advocates would say that they are against this increase in gun violence, too. I think that they would still call this gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, w- the difference becomes when someone would say, see, these laws don't work. Mm-hmm. That's where we differ. We have these strong laws in Maryland. Look at this uptick in crime. The Firearm Safety Act doesn't work. Maryland's strong gun laws don't work. I feel like that's where we differ in our arguments. And so do gun rights advocates say, yes, we would like to reduce homicides by guns? Is that something that an NRA card-holding person would, would say? Well, that is what they would say, but I think we have a clear difference in the foundation of how to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. A gun rights advocate would say... We need more guns. Mm-hmm. We need more guns so that we and can that protect would themselves. Homicides. And that would reduce gun homicides because we could protect ourselves 
if someone is is threatening us, is and threatening our family. you would say? And I would say, based on research and statistics and studies, mm-hmm. that more guns do not make us safer. And if that were the case, then Baltimore would be one of the safest cities in the country, and it is not. How many guns per capita are in Baltimore? Uh, I don't know what the guns per capita is, um, but... But there are a lot. But, yeah, well, yes. I mean, there's there's a lot. I mean, just last year, I, I believe the Baltimore Police Department uh, confiscated about 1,800 guns used in crimes just that they were able to get off the streets. So, so, so when we talk about why Maryland laws don't work or do work, I think it's also important to talk about the different types of gun violence. Mm -hmm. What we've talked about so far and what most people think of gun violence is Mm -hmm. going to be a gun homicide. Mm -hmm. There are about 11,000 gun homicides that happen in this country every year. There are over 20,000 gun suicides that happen every year. Hmm. And not many people talk about gun suicides that they happen, you know, not only are is are guns a taboo subject, but also suicide and mental health is a taboo subject. Um, but the combination... Would gun rights advocates say that suicide by guns is something we'd like to avoid? Uh, I, I assume that they would say that, but then at the same time, they would loosen every single um, gun policy or gun regulation that we would have in our country. So, so, okay. so, so, so you can say one thing and how, fight for another. How could you prevent a suicide? Right. So if somebody wants to kill themselves, they can throw themselves off a building. They can OD on drugs. They can do a lot of yes. things to kill themselves. But most people who commit suicide do that with a gun because it's so fatal. And what actually you find is that more women attempt suicide but more women survive that attempt and do not attempt again because they don't use a gun. More men actually commit suicide because they use a gun. There are no second chances when it comes with a gun. And as I was saying before, that study with Connecticut, we didn't just see a drop in homicide, we saw a drop in gun suicide because so often a suicide can be an impulsive act. You have a person who is in crisis, who is suffering, they're and they might depressed. later re- regret right. and, doing that. And, and they might not even be in a deep, what we would call a, a diagnosis of a deep depression. You know, it may just be a time of crisis where their girlfriend just broke up with them. Mm-hmm. They're going through a divorce. Um, they're suffering from alcohol abuse or a combination of these things. They just lost their job. Mm-hmm. So these could be crises that someone could overcome mm-hmm. had a gun not been in the mix. So if you have to if you're contemplating suicide and you want to buy a gun if you have to first take a safety course mm-hmm. if you have to first take um uh, go to a local law enforcement and get fingerprinted who are trying to commit suicide with a gun are they going out and purchasing a gun or do they happen to have had a gun for five years and all of a sudden they decide to use it well perhaps they may uh try to go out and purchase it um i know there is a a, a, a member that we work with a volunteer and her sister who committed suicide was living in Michigan and she went to a gun show and purchased that in eight minutes. So I committed suicide soon after. And so I think we see both cases. Mm-hmm. I think that that's why if you already do own a gun, it's important that we talk about educating gun owners on suicide and making sure. Uh, I know that there's a, a, a project that many gun owners and uh, gun stores support, which is called um, uh, Project Gun Safe. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And so they try to have handouts and pamphlets in gun stores um, recommending that if you're going through a crisis, you can give it to a friend. Mm-hmm. 
The problem I see is especially in a state like Maryland where it's illegal to transfer a handgun to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, how does a person suffering from suicide um, then transfer that if they're in crisis? And so one of the bills that we want to work on that would really help address suicide mm-hmm. or someone who's going to be a danger to themselves or others mm-hmm. um, would be a gun violence restraining order. So if you are a family member of someone or a close friend of someone and you have a friend who you know already owns a gun Mm -hmm. and they are in a crisis and they've been talking about suicide or they've been showing behaviors that makes you feel as though they're going to be a danger to themselves, then you could um, go to local law enforcement, you could petition the court, and then then temporarily they could have those guns removed um, to to, to keep them safe. So on the topic of licensing guns... um, Many, so gun rights advocates would potentially say that, you know, the Second Amendment in the United States Constitution guarantees a right to bear arms, which was interpreted in the Heller v. D.C. Supreme Court case as an individual right, breaking historical precedent. Nevertheless, that is the law of the land today. So if the uh, law of the land is that we have an individual right to bear arms, there is nothing in the Constitution that says we have an individual right to drive cars. So it may be appropriate to require someone to get a driver's license to use a car because there's no constitutional right to do so, but there is a constitutional right to bear arms. So it would be unconstitutional to get a light driver's license, uh, to get a gun ownership license in order to purchase a gun. How would you respond? So also in Heller and DC, there was a a part of that argument um, where Antonin Scalia stated that um, you don't have the right to own what gun, you know, a gun whatsoever, wheresoever, mm-hmm. and whosoever. So even Antonin Scalia, a super conservative member of the of the Supreme Court, right. um, said that yes, you have a right, an individual right to own this gun, but the government has a right to make sure that you are not a dangerous person. Right. You don't have the right to just carry it whatsoever, and that there are certain types of weaponry that maybe the average citizen shouldn't have. And that's been given to the different states to determine um, what those standards should be. And so to get a license, no one is saying that you can't have that handgun. What a license does is it ensures that it's not a dangerous person um, who is going to be gaining access to that firearm. So what is the current process um, for obtaining firearms in Maryland? Because maybe some of our listeners aren't aware of that. Do you need a license currently? So you... To get a handgun, uh, or in Maryland, which we call a, a regulated firearm, mm-hmm. you would have to get a handgun purchaser license. And I have one. Mm-hmm. I went through the process. I took the class. Uh, you apply online through the Maryland State Police. You don't even have to go to the Maryland State Police. You can apply online. It doesn't mm-hmm. take very long. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a $50 fee online. Mm-hmm. And then you apply, uh, or you find a a gun safety organization. So you don't have to go through the Maryland State Police for that. Mm-hmm. You can find any um, any uh, gun gun store or um, gun instructor who would have a, a licensed um, class. Right. And so you go, and it's a four-hour class. So I think I went on a Saturday for mm-hmm. four hours. Um, and you um, learn about Maryland's uh, different laws. Uh, you learn a little bit about gun safety. So I had the opportunity to take apart a Glock mm-hmm. and put it back together mm-hmm. and learn how to clean it and be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that four hours, right. um, then you go back to your online application. You submit the numbers. Um, uh, 
they have fingerprinting, but actually we did it right in the class. You just pay directly to the to the instructor, mm-hmm. and then they can do your fingerprints for you. Um, and then once you get it, um, a, a receipt, you'll get it in the mail, and that'll say you are not a you know convicted felon. You don't have any disqualifying crimes, and then you submit those numbers to this online application. Um, it takes a few weeks, and then you're going to get your little handgun purchaser license in the mail. You can take that to uh, um, a, a gun dealer if mm-hmm. you want to buy your handgun, um, and that's good for 10 years. So you have those initial costs in the beginning, but it's good for 10 years. Is it a similar process with a uh, with a long rifle? So if you have if you have a long rifle or if you have a shotgun. Um, all you need is a standard NICS background check. So if you go to Walmart, if you go to Cabela's, if you go to Dick's Sporting Goods, mm-hmm. um, you can go straight there for a long gun, um, and, um, and 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 they'll do your you know minute long NICS background check before you do that. And the reason that we focus specifically on handguns is because the overwhelming majority of gun homicides. And gun suicides are committed with handguns. So it's harder to do a rifle that's three ab- feet long. Absolutely, and, and 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 handguns are easier to conceal. So if you're talking about urban gun violence, you know handguns are are easier to have on the street. Um, and so we were focused on trying to reduce gun violence. We weren't in 2013 trying to um, inconvenience uh, hunters in the hunting community in Maryland as well. So we try to be smart about the policies that we that we put forth. And the compromises that we're open to. So just in terms of the the effect of the 2013 law, of course, one thing that was noticed as a negative externality is that the law passed and was signed into law by the governor in May of 2013 by Governor Martin O'Malley, mm-hmm. but it didn't go into effect until October 1st, 2013. In that period of time, Maryland saw a market increase in the purchase of assault rifles around the state of Maryland to people fearing that they wouldn't be able to purchase assault rifles after this went into effect. Has there, what was the what was was there what was the effect of that on on uh, gun violence in Maryland, if any? And of course, you also said that you saw a decrease in homicides. And I wonder if any of your studies have been able to attribute the decrease in homicides to the actual law. So, uh, in, in terms of the assault weapons that were purchased, and I know also there was a huge backlog of people trying to get um, to buy handguns before mm-hmm. um, the um, handgun purchaser licensing went through. But that deals a lot with fear mongering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hear from the NRA, you hear from you know certain um, leaders who are um, in debt to the NRA mm-hmm. um, that we are going to take all of your guns. You know, so you also so you actually see an uptick in gun sales every time there's a mass shooting, mm-hmm. sadly enough. Um, and of course, there was the fear mongering with uh, President Obama. He's going to take your guns. So in certain instances um, or certain executive actions that would happen, you would see an uptick. So that's pretty normal in terms of as different gun violence prevention measures are passed, mm-hmm. With that fear-mongering right before that happens, you're going to be seeing an, up, an uptick in gun sales. Uh, in terms of the lower homicide, there weren't any studies that tried to connect them. So we can't say causatively the Firearm Safety Act reduced that. Mm-hmm. Just like you can't say there's been an increase in Baltimore City, that's because of the Firearm Safety Act or right. because it's not working. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. We're going to need a longer trend. Mm-hmm. Um of about 10 years to see where that is going. And even if you talk to the Baltimore Police Department, the high rise in in um, gun homicides that is happening is a huge anomaly. I mean, there was such a rise in 2015, mm-hmm. um, and we're still trying to understand those despite reasons. Despite the law being... Despite the law. But it's also important to remember that Maryland is not an island. I mean, our country is made up 
of a patchwork of a few states with strong laws and an overwhelming majority of states with very loose laws. So, so a lot of guns in Baltimore came from other states so with six, looser laws. Yes, 62% of the guns used in crime in Baltimore City come from states with looser laws. They come from Pennsylvania and Virginia and West Virginia and Tennessee. Um, and 44% of the guns used in crime across the state of Maryland come from those same areas. So we need laws on the federal level that are also going to keep um, guns being trafficked into Maryland mm -hmm. and being placed into the under underground market here. Um, but that's not to say that there's something that we can't do because there are still illegal gun transfers of handguns happening in the state of Maryland. There are still straw purchases that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so right now I'm working with the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research, and we're trying to increase um, the enforcement and the efficiency of that enforcement of illegal gun transfers here. Right. Because one of the problems that we're finding is that there was a court case that set precedent back in 2007. It was Chow versus the state of Maryland. And basically, Chow said, oh, um, no, I wasn't, I wasn't selling a gun. I wasn't transferring it. I was just loaning it. It was temporary. Um, and the court realized that there was actually a loophole and there's no definition under Maryland law as to what constitutes a transfer. And so um, he was acquitted. And you can see uh, charts and studies done, mm -hmm. um, or research done at least, um, that there's been an, an incredible drop in prosecutions of these illegal gun transfers. So right, so these these private these illegal private sales that are happening, mm -hmm. um, and there's been a huge drop in those since 2007 because of this case. And there's no registry of guns, right? So in Maryland, if you have a regulated handgun then yes, then the Maryland State Police does keep a registry. There's no national registry. There's no registry of, um, of long guns in Maryland. And a lot of people, a lot of you know, gun rights advocates will say that um, a registry can be used for confiscation. Right. But, but the real aspect of that is that it's an incredible tool for law enforcement to make mm -hmm. sure that they can um, track guns that are used in crimes. Um, you can make sure that if someone is convicted of a domestic violence um, crime or if someone has a domestic violence protective order out against them, then law enforcement can use that to make sure that they go um, and remove the guns from dangerous people. So there's, of course, a slippery slope fallacy. And they, and they actually aren't wrong. These NRA advocates who say that a gun registry would help law enforcement track down and confiscate guns because if there were, as you're advocating for a... Um, uh, gun violence restraining order placed against you in that case uh, a police officer would come to your house and remove your gun and they would know that you had that gun if th there are different scenarios if if the you know where a police officer might confiscate a gun right well we're talking about people who are a danger to themselves or others right um, so right now that's so so that gun violence restraining order would be very similar to the process we have in Maryland for a domestic violence protective order right so yes if you have been shown to, um, if you dangerous to your wife and to your family, law enforcement can go remove that. But we're talking about dangerous people, and in terms of the gun violence restraining order, someone who could be a danger to themselves. Right. And so we have to keep a balance, a, a, a balance, because you can talk about an irrational fear of the government's going to use this to come and take your gun, but I would say let's talk about the rational fear. Of you, the, shot. of you getting shot or you shooting yourself because um, you're going through that crisis. So, so I think we need to separate 
rational fear from irrational fear and make sure that we're passing laws. So which is the greater threat? And you're saying there's a greater threat to public health faced by mass shootings yes. or by a high frequency of individual shootings than there is the potential for a government to use a registry to confiscate the guns of people who are not actually dangerous to society. Absolutely. So um, we are nearing the end of the podcast. Um, I'd like to ask you a final question. Um, you're now in a leadership role as the president of Marylanders to prevent gun violence. You are an advocate. You clearly um, are quite knowledgeable about firearm regulation in Maryland. Um, I'd like to ask you to speak about public service, um, both in terms of your current position, but also uh, as a mother, as, as a former high school teacher, um, and just speak for a minute to our listeners about why it is that you believe it's so important to try to improve our society for others and what, at the end of the day, you hope you will have accomplished throughout your time in public service throughout uh, your life. So I think especially right now, we're in a political climate where a lot of people who oppose policies in the Trump administration particularly are finding their advocacy feet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we are starting to realize, and what I had realized when I got involved four and a half years ago, is that if we don't stand up for what's right and we don't stand up for what we believe in, no one else is going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so many, so often, you know, we, we find our, our lives are busy and we, you know, we don't have time. We can't go to this meeting or we can't go to this hearing. And we think, well, that's okay because someone else will do it. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we're at, a, at a, an important time in our politics where we, we are that people. We need to be the ones standing up for this. No one else is going to do it. Um, it's going to come from grassroots movements in states all over the country on a number of different issues that, that people believe in. So it could be gun violence. It could be immigration. Um, it could be Islamophobia. Um, there are so many issues right now that are in danger, you know, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. Um, and it is our job, it is our responsibility as Americans to stand up and fight for what we believe in. Um, and not just as advocates, but also as leaders. Um, run for office, you know, start at the local level, build up to the state level. Um, if people are unhappy with the leaders that we have on the national level, we need to start getting involved now. And that has been Jen Pagliaconis, the president of Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence, a former legislative director for Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence, the former Maryland chapter lead for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, and a former high school educator who speaks about public service as a responsibility um, for all Americans to fight for what they believe in. In fact, Jen's... Uh, Jen's perspective calls to mind a, a statement pertaining to the 20th century Holocaust during World War II, where someone said, you know, <clears throat> first they came for the Jews, and, and I said nothing because I was not Jewish, and, and then they came for the gays, and, and I said nothing because I was not gay, and then they came for the Catholics, and I said nothing because I was not Catholic, and uh, then they finally came for me, and there was nobody left to speak up for me. Uh, I may have gotten the quote a little bit wrong, but the point is that we're all in this together. And for Jen, public service and, and advocacy go hand in hand. 
uh, as a responsibility, not only to fight for this issue, which is important to her, gun, gun violence prevention through firearm regulation and state law and federal law in, in Maryland, but she's also, she recognizes that we're all in this together and there are many other issues um, that matter. Obviously, she's a mom, an educator, has interests in different policy areas across society and uh, it may not have been her child who was shot up in Connecticut, but she feels a responsibility to stand up for what she believes in because if you wait until you become the victim, then, then it's too late. So for Jen, uh, public service is all about uh, standing up and taking responsibility uh, for what you believe in in society. Jen, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And this has been episode 143 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'd like to remind you to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com. Listen on iTunes, your podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Should you wish to leave a voicemail for Jen, you can call 240-630-0380, and that voicemail will be emailed to her, and she'll uh, be able to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.